Hello, everybody. Just a very quick one about Instagram. If you're on it, Meta, the parent company, is reducing the number of political posts visible to users on their feed. This is a real thing, not a hoax. So go to your Instagram profile, tap the three horizontal lines in the top right corner to open the settings tab, scroll down to what you see, click on content preferences, open political content, and turn on don't limit political content. That's an option. Otherwise, you won't see almost anything we post because we are deemed political. Please do that now or you won't even see the posts about our shows, our fun things. So if you want to see Guilty Feminist content and know when we're coming to a place near you, releasing a new podcast, do it now. I'm a feminist, but I did do a quick Google search with a close friend of mine to see if Nathaniel Curtis, who plays Ash in It's a Sin, was actually Mm -hmm. gay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just for my own curiosity, mm-hmm. just out of right. interest, because he is very sexually attractive to me. And I He's thought, so beautiful. To the, to the entire be, planet, isn't he? Yeah, he might yeah. be pansexual. We don't know. We don't know. So it's, it's worth a Google. Deborah, I don't mean to piggyback, but I'm a feminist, but um, before Nathaniel showed up to be interviewed for the After Hours show, I casually asked Lydia and Omari if he was straight at all and single at all. Um, so just big apologies to Nathaniel. Um, you're very handsome and uh, people don't know what to do. Yeah, I'm a feminist. I'm also a feminist, but I, before the read through Instagram stalked Nathaniel and saw him um, in a photo kind of hugging his best friend I think her name's Stitch and um, kissing her actually on the lips and I was like I'm in oh, yeah. Open yeah. To. Yeah. we're so sorry to be objectifying you Nathaniel because um, this... we appreciate your brilliant work and contribution we really really <laughs> do so this amazing. is a very respectful objectification this part of the show is called I'm a feminist but for a reason it's like feminist confessional uh, we reveal those those things inside of us that are not our finest hour, but certainly <laughs> do sometimes inhabit a Look. very fine man uh, slash woman. Well, I, I'm a feminist, but I'm old enough to be his mother, so I can't even speak about talking about how Look. beautiful Daniel is. So I'm going to shut up on that one. Well, that's just that's just extra guilty, isn't yes, it, Joe? Extra you, guilty. Are you more proud of him? Because there's sometimes young men in my life where people go, oh, God, he's so hot. And I'm like... I feel like I'd breastfeed him before I'd snog him. He's just like, no. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean by that. But he's just so, you just want to look at him. Yeah, he is. Because he's, he's very, he is a very beautiful man. But he's also so say. amazing too. Like so when he, The fact that someone can be such a talented actor and look like that is just not fair. Yeah, yeah. He's, yeah. He is, he's, he's stunning. Guys, I just want to say, um, in terms of breastfeeding and snogging, right? Um, I just want to say it's 2021 and you can do both. Okay. okay. There's no need to limit yourselves. People are doing all sorts of things and just don't hold yourself back. Okay. We do, need, we do need his consent. Yeah. Yes, I'm just saying don't in, within yourself, don't be opposed to the combination of those activities. No, no, no. Because I, that I, is that a thing. Because uh, just to be extremely clear, uh, the I'm a feminist butt section is about those small ways in which our values and actions don't meet, uh, not illegal ways. Yeah, uh, yeah. So um, I'm a feminist, but I'm also open to the idea of Amari Douglas, who plays Roscoe, not being gay in real life. Uh, all of I'm your... open to the idea of it. Uh, not all fully of your... gay. I want him to be gay. I do. I don't want to deprive the gay population of Roscoe, but also... I just feel like now this generation is much more fluid, open, you know, gender fluid. It's much more pansexual. And I like this because I think it doesn't deprive anybody of the fantasy and the opportunity. I remember um, uh, Rupert Everett once saying, an old lady wrote to him and said, I was so disappointed when I found out you were gay. And then I thought, what chance did I really have anyway? You go for it. <laughs> similarly, similarly with the young men in It's a Sin and the young women, 
Lydia, you have a charisma that is absolutely extraordinary. You have such a beautiful face, but also you have that light energy that comes out mm. of you. Um, I see the same thing with Susan McCormick. There's a on one. The Look at the smile. Of... She's radiant. Yeah, ra- it's a radiance, isn't it? That's it what is. it is. It's a radiance. It's a joyful radiance. I wonder if Russell like specifies or whatever because you hear it. I've even said it, and I was like, "Who am I, an old man?" But like, whenever people describe it, they're like, "And it's this cool, sexy cast." And I'm like, as much as I want to say something else, yes. It's just yeah. like, I think, like, you guys, there's it's this very... flow that you have together. It's and It's chemistry not just... as well, isn't it? You want to be in the chemistry. Yeah. Because yeah. it's not just that everyone is gorgeous, okay? Which let wow. us know everyone is gorgeous. It's the vibe. And you can feel that you guys, like, have a respect and a warmth toward each other. And We actually really like each other. It's genuine. Like we really, really, really get on. <laughs> I'm a feminist, but in line with the theme of TV, I've been watching this show that I really enjoy but feel quite naughty about. Um, It's called Eastbound and Down, and it stars Danny McBride, who's just ridiculous in everything. Like, we might remember him from, like, Pineapple Express and stuff. There was a particular line that he said yesterday that just sent me, and I felt so bad about how hard I was laughing at it. And he's talking to a woman who's just broken his heart, and he goes, Here I was thinking that you were a whore with a heart of gold. Turns out you're just a whore with a regular whore's heart. And something about the phrase regular whore's heart just sent me. And I had to watch it like five more times. And I was just like, this is not okay, but I love it. I'm a feminist, but I'm really trying not to laugh at this because it is it's so funny. turn of phrase, it's piece the, of writing. Is it alliteration? Is that what you call that? Without the whore's very heart. Problematic. It's yeah. super problematic. Oh. I'm a feminist, but in reality, I do think... I am a gay man trapped inside a cis woman's body. <laughs> I am. I am. I am 90% gay man. And I think it's probably somewhat genetic, somewhat circumstantial, because I had some years in a cult and got shunned and things like that. So I always feel a, a kinness with the shunning that a lot of queer people have, or certainly had in that era. But I think for various reasons... I've ended up pretty much a gay man in a cis woman's body. And I'm just, <laughs> my best friends are gay men often. So I love you, feminism. And obviously, I wouldn't wish upon myself the oppression and marginalization and, you know, the horror of the 80s with AIDS for gay men, of course. However, the joyful parts of being a gay man are, oh, man, man, I'd love to be a really handsome gay man sometimes. Just go... Just give me a year in a handsome gay man's body. I want to like disagree with you. I want to say, I want to say, you know, hey, no one's trapped inside of anyone else. Um, but I hear where you're coming from. Yeah, I mean, I'm using that colloquially, but there is an element. There is an element where I'm like, I would make a great gay man. My God, I'd make a great gay man. And I would be interested in having a penis for like 48 hours just to see. Are you doing helicopters with it or are you just kind of walking around with it? No special tricks. I would just like to know what it's like, like to sort of, you know, wake up with it. I mean, in some ways it seems like a massive, like baggage, like luggage. It feels like a suitcase <laughs> to carry. Yeah. And in other ways, like what would you do with it? You know, it just would get in the way a bit. But in other ways. I'd slap my friends. No, that's not what you would do with it. Yes, I would. I'd make an appointment with my friends. And I, I'd give them a little slap. And they'd be like, came on. I'd be like, what? It's new. <laughs> I'd just be interested because, I, I mean, it does look like fun having one. I'm not going to lie. It looks like fun. Look, there are levels and layers to this. And maybe we need to bring on, like, an expert in, like, gender and sexuality. Because I, I got questions. <laughs> There was that that montage and it's a sin of Richie uh, hooking up with like loads of boys. And I was like, I know I'm watching this, but I also want to be a part of this. And I don't know how. Um, And that's that's just complicated. What are we going to do with that? This is why I love Gen Z, because there is just a kind of joined in fluidity. You put your left foot in, you put your left foot out. Deborah, I'm not Gen Z. I'm 38. If you are not 38, <laughs> not 30. you're, you're permanently 25, as far as I can make out. 
If you haven't had a birthday since I've known you, which is strange. From a variety of bedrooms and kitchens via Zoom, the Spontaneity Shop presents The Guilty Feminist with me, Deborah Francis White, guest co-host Kima Bob, and our very special guests Lydia West and Jill Nalda are talking about It's a Sin! It's a Sin special, so exciting. This is The Guilty Feminist, the podcast in which we explore our noble goals as 21st century feminists and our hypocrisies and insecurities which undermine them. I'm Deborah Francis White, with me is my co-pilot Kima Bob, and we are talking about it's a sin. It's yes, true. It's an It's a Sin special. Now, Kima is doing it. Now, if, just to give the listeners some context, because not everyone will know this show, it's a show by an incredible writer called Russell T. Davies, who you may know from Queer as Folk or Cucumber or the reboot of Doctor Who. Mm. Um, also known in the streets as Russell T. Slavies because he killed this script. Oh, oh, Slay, Slay. Slavies, mm-hmm. okay. indeed. Right, because that sounds a lot like slavery. Like slavery. Yes, it did. It did. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, it's so tough. slay the script. It is Black History Month in America. Yeah, is that's it? why I was concerned by what you were saying there. Because um, <laughs> I thought you were going to go, because he's he was closely related to Edward Colston. And I was oh, like, no. well, this is going to take a turn. slay It's that's the pause. It's better. the pause. And Russell, if you're listening, hello. Russell was very nice to me. I won the Writers Guild Award in uh, 2016 for Best Radio Comedy and Russell was winning some special, you know, best some... guy in the world award. The <laughs> it was just one of those ones where I think they give you a, a sort of like a lifetime achievement or something. Yes, like, yes, he got a lifetime achievement. Yeah, it was yeah. like a special boy award and I was getting Best Radio Comedy. <laughs> but he was so nice to me. He came up and he was so mm. nice to me and charming and I've never seen him since. And I think now I'd sort of, you know, just take his number and go say, let's go to the pub. I mean, I wouldn't now because obviously going to the pub is illegal and there are no pubs. The idea of the pub's gone. But then I was just sort of so in awe of him. And so I was just like, oh, hello, Russell T. Davies, you're amazing. Uh, but he is a genius writer. And this show is about young people in the 80s coming to London for the first time, getting away from their parents, living, living large, doing all the wonderful things that people did when they got away from their parents in the 80s. And it was a different time as well. I think the generation gap has definitely narrowed in as much as young people now will sit and watch the same show with sex scenes in it as their parents, listen to the same music as their parents often in many cases. And in the 80s, that really wasn't the case. The generation gap was much wider. And this is a show about young people coming to London for the first time from all over getting out there, living large, and then this meteorite coming in to this world of young gay men and their friends of this mysterious disease that they'd heard about, which at first sounds to them kind of like a homophobic conspiracy theory of like, oh, there's a disease, but it's coming for gay men. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, right-wing Christians. You know, that's that's what it sounded like. And so they didn't want to believe it. And you can see how it starts encroaching on this joyful world. And I think what Russell T. Davies is brilliant at is understanding the value of joy in a show about AIDS. Because I think shows that are about bleak subjects are often bleak, bleak, bleakity, bleak, bleak, bleakisons. Because people feel like, oh, we need to just give this topic the this theme this the respect and the awe and how dreadful all of this was but what he understands is the horror of AIDS is so much worse when it crashes into youthful joy mm. yeah. when you have set a world in which we all want to be we all feel we're friends with these people we're all part of the party we're all having a wonderful time now how bad is AIDS when it comes in now how devastating is it now how horrifying is it when it's breaking up this circle of glorious friends and also destroying futures of people we are invested in. Uh, so that's a sort of overview, I think, without any spoilers of It's a Sin. We have some incredibly special guests today. And we also have as co-pilot Kima Bob, who is hosting the It's a Sin after show for Channel 4. So we couldn't be, you are our resident It's a Sinner, you say. Kima. We're all sinned up, baby. <laughs> We're all sinned up. Couldn't sin anymore. Indeed. Hello, Goody Feminists. It's Jessica Regan here from Big Speeches, and I am delighted to announce not one, but two upcoming dates for our Big Speeches workshop online. You can now take part in this course 
from the comfort of your own home over Zoom. And we have spent a lot of time honing it and perfecting it. And we're really happy with what we've come up with. So if you want to get booking, you have the option of Saturday, March 6th or Saturday, March 20th. It will take place from 10.30am and it will finish at 2.30pm. But I always stay on for a bit of time extra for, for any questions that you might have. So I'm um, really looking forward to seeing you. Really looking forward to getting back online and teaching this course again. And I hope you get booking because we do want you to avoid disappointment. Go online now to guiltyfeminist.com to secure a place. Our guests today are, one, an actress best known for her portrayals of Bethany in BBC One's Years and Years, and Jill in Channel 4's It's a Sin. Her portrayal of Jill has been met with glowing critical acclaim and has resonated so strongly with audiences that there's even a trending hashtag, Be More Jill. Wow. Please welcome Lydia West! Yeah! Yeah, 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 yeah! Our other guest is... Get this, guys. Hold on. Are you strapped in? The actual Jill. What? From real life. The IRL Jill. Jill Nalder is an actress who lived in London in the 80s in the actual Pink Palace because it's real. Because it's real. Yeah. Seen in the series and supported many gay men affected by the AIDS crisis, losing three close friends in the epidemic. She was involved in fundraising for research around AIDS and visited many victims of the illness in hospital, giving them care and company. Her experience was the inspiration for Russell T Davies' It's a Sin, in which she appears playing her namesake's mother. Hello, Jill. Hello. Hello, hello. So we've got Screen Jill and Real Jill, and Real Jill plays Screen Jill's mother on screen. And it's Jillception. Yeah. It is. It's Jillception. Jill, how did you feel when... Russell first said he wanted to write the show. Did he call you and say, I'm writing a show in part about you? Well, he's, he didn't do it like in one big moment or anything like that. He's been thinking about writing something about this for many years. He's wanted to write about AIDS. And as a tribute to the boys that died, he's wanted to put all that. And he said, he, he was always saying, I'm going to talk to you about what it was like. You know, because he he knew he knew my friends, and he you know we've never we've never not been friends. We we knew each other as teenagers, so it didn't all come like hello. I'm writing this. It grew and it grew and it grew, and in the last couple of weeks, it's grown beyond all imagination. So yeah, it oh. it it feels now quite incredible. But on the way, I didn't think it was going to get this much sort of attention. In a way, I always knew that Russell because he's he writes so brilliantly I knew that what he wrote would be amazing but it seems to have taken on a, a life of its own as well as that somehow so didn't see that coming I think it might be a time and a place thing as well I think yeah. sometimes you just hit the zeitgeist and if he'd written this 5 years ago maybe it wouldn't have taken off in quite this I mean I'm sure it would have always been fantastic but I think there's something about us being in a pandemic at the moment Totally agree and not to in any way equate coronavirus with AIDS because as you see in the show, I mean it's a horrendous disease. And yes. And, and also not to minimise coronavirus, you know, people I know, that's who it. die it's of so... it. But I didn't understand really how until I saw it's a sin, how it eats at your brain as well. So you don't actually know where you are or what you're doing, as well as the whole of your body, the immune system for the whole of the body falling apart. It's such a terrible disease. You just didn't know which thing you were going to get. You could just get mm. anything or you could have three illnesses that were all, you know, life-threatening or just one and you would die quite quickly or you could get a recovery and then get something else and then get something else. And, you know, so it was um, terrifying in that sense, yeah. So because it eats at your immune system, yeah. your immune system is then open to all sorts of things. And this is why people contracted cancer and, and dementia and all things sorts of things. that are already there things. in your body as well, things that are already in you from maybe years before that you might have, your immune system would just keep naturally at bay, can suddenly rear up and, and you know, things that wouldn't ever cause you a problem as a fit you know, normally fit person, mm. all of a sudden that's a life-threatening thing, like some simple thing like thrush which is normally dealt with, can be so 
dis- disable you in such a way because it would just go rampant in somebody's body that that was so immunosuppressed. And that can happen, I think, with, well, it can with chemotherapy and stuff, but year in, year out, that's very wearing. And that's just one sort of simple infection. Lydia, what was it like for you when you first got the script? Because you're obviously a young woman. Mm-hmm. And you don't remember the eighties. Presumably, you weren't born anywhere near the eighties. No, <laughs> no furious. I, I'm like no, uh, no. I, I, I was born in ninety three. Ninety three. So yeah. So you. So you really, really don't remember the eighties. No. Um, so how was it when you got the script and saw this part of Jill? What was it about Jill that attracted you to the script? Well, I first received episodes one and two, and I was just in awe of the, from the first page, I was just like, I would love to be involved in such a project. This is so important. I'd worked with Russell before, so I was kind of familiar with his writing. And obviously Russell T Davis is a legend. So whenever you get sent a Russell T Davis audition, you're just like, ah, oh my gosh. So um, reading the first two episodes, I remember finishing episode two and just kind of in floods of tears already. And then I auditioned and later was sent three to five and I remember kind of hyperventilating I couldn't breathe at the end of five and I was just oh it's just it's so special and I what was surprising for me was how little I knew I'd watched kind of a lot of AIDS dramas I'd seen a lot of the AIDS films I'd read some AIDS fiction and I was surprised at what I didn't know so me too yeah me too I don't think other things have depicted it properly or maybe fully, or it was. It was that it's. You see so many different AIDS patients in this who you are already attached to mm-hmm. that you see the different ways it can manifest. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and even things like Section Twenty A, I had. I didn't. I didn't know. I didn't know what that was. And so, for our global listeners and our young listeners, just to say that Section Twenty Eight, uh, you may be able to describe it better than I can, Lydia. Section Twenty Eight was brought in in nineteen eighty eight, and it was prohibiting the promotion of homosexuality in schools that went on to 2003 which just absolutely blows my mind the fact that in 2003 that that law was still in place Mm -hmm. and it's still kind of in our generation because it was only abolished 20 years ago less than 20 years ago so you can just imagine that kind of what that the shame that still lies surrounding homosexuality because of such a law that was in place by our government. And by promotion by of homosexuality as well. It was like no gay characters in books, no mm-hmm. reference. If a teacher was gay, they couldn't say they were gay. It was a real shamefulness. It wasn't like, good morning, students, this is how to be gay. It was like you could have a characters in a book that were Mr. and Mrs. somebody, but you couldn't have Mr. and Mr. You just couldn't reference it. We had to pretend that it didn't mm-hmm. exist until 2003 in this country. And imagine sex education classes mm. like when you're in your formative years, when you're learning about sex education. And if you're gay, you're not being taught that that's allowed or that it's that it's, it's shame. You can just imagine how that would play a part in your life, in your yeah. kind of formative years, which just blows my mind. And the lack of information, you know, can lead to a lack of safety because you simply don't Sorry. know what to do and what the risks are. And that's something that we see in the show. I want to ask Lydia, like, from hearing you speak right now about Section 28, something that you previously didn't know much about, it kind of seems like playing Jill and being a part of this project has helped you, like, hashtag be more Jill. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I always kind of considered myself as an ally, but I didn't realise kind of what it takes to be an ally like Jill is the the most amazing ally in the show and it taught me the importance of allies like these unsung heroes like yourself Jill that did all these things from a place of love that spoke up when everyone turned their back that was the voice that these people that faced discrimination didn't have and you stood tall in that crowd and faced your uh, I'm sure your own all sorts of discrimination from as being a woman at that time and it's just It's so powerful. And I think that's what the world, the collective mental health of the UK needed to see this on screen just to like appreciate these people in life that are heroes and that don't do it for a round of applause and just do it from a place of love. Mm -hmm. It's so gorgeous. And you are so gorgeous, Jill. And that's all my speech. (laughs) Thank you, Lydia. Not at all, though. (laughs) But Jill, you did at a time when lots of people... Well, a friend of mine was saying recently that she remembered in the 90s 
there was a man downstairs that had AIDS and they had, you know, they'd have cups of tea with him and things, but people would go, oh, give him his own cup, never touch his cup, you know, like yeah, things yeah. like All that. All that stuff that was, is madness. Yeah. And there was this massive fear because at first, I mean, certainly in the 80s, by the 90s, I think we did know that, but she said there was just still this fear around it. But in the 80s, they and it's depicted really well in its and they didn't know. They didn't know if it was sweat. No. Can I get it from sweat? Oh, can I get it from no. saliva? Can I get it from, you know, what can I get it from? Can I get it from touching somebody? And it was such a harrowing disease. Yeah. How did you have the courage to just go, these people are my friends. I'm going to be there for them. I'm going to nurse them. I'm going to connect with them. I'm going to meet other people whose families and friends have abandoned them or they're too ashamed to tell their family and friends. How did you have the courage and the compassion to be central in the fight for recognition for AIDS and AIDS research, but also to just be there as a human being for another human being? That's such a strong question. And it's so, it just sort of happened. You just sort of do it. It felt like normal life to be supportive and to help. And I'd already grown up with people like Russell, we know, you know, that had already gay friends when I came to London. So, this is all kind of when you have a lot of gay friends in your life, you're just going to accept that as a normal. To me, that was my my friends. I didn't put a label on that at all. I just loved it. Like you say, being a gay man in a woman's body, do you know what I mean? It's that mm-hmm. kind of identification. They were soulmates to me. My friends were my soulmates. And I didn't think twice about supporting and being there. I used to think, you know, you see like... You, Certain things, you, you've got to take care with your sexual health. You know, that that is how you get HIV. The touching and the sharing of cups and all that kind of thing. You're not going to get it. You know, you, you we were told you're not getting it like that. But still, but you people didn't know have that, that at fear. the beginning of the 80s. No, not at the beginning of the 80s. You didn't really know that. But obviously, if you could get it from a cup or from touching. It wouldn't be in one part of the community. It makes sense that it would spread or to everybody, because it was segregated and you had this warning from the gay community for the rest of the country, in fact, they didn't get any care and love because of that. They just got stigmatized. But it stood to reason you you can't get it from touching. Otherwise, you know, it will be like coronavirus. Anyone could get it. And then so it as although anyone can get it, it just showed up in that community, first of all. So I didn't ever have that horrific fear that some people had. The crazy thing was about kissing. They said you must be dry kissing. Now, yeah, well, now people Christian like that. You know, you just don't. I know love a dry kiss. What you you think? Oh, they're giving this weird advice all the time, and so it was all a mixture. But I just never questioned my own where I was going to be to help. I didn't question that. Now you play your own mother in this show. Yes. Were your parents as supportive as? You, as they seem to be in the show, as they are portrayed. You know what? They were. They were, were supportive. They bloody well were. Oh. They were marvellous. Yeah, they were marvellous. And honestly, and they, they were slightly, my parents have both passed now. They were older having me. My mum in that time was quite was a bit older. She was 37 when she had me and I was her first child. So I think she had a bit of experience of life. She was always very accepting. My dad would just go, oh, let them get on with it. He was that kind of person, you know, not not um, not going to interfere in any way. But my mum loved my gay friends. Ooh. My mum loved them. And, and she was very, very supportive. And one of my very dear friends spoke to my mum when he couldn't speak to his own mum and said, what would you feel if you hadn't been told? Mm. And, you know, that was I was very emotional for me that because, you know, m- my mum would say, you know, I, I'd want to know. I would want to know. I would want to help. Do you think the depictions of the various parents and families' responses reflected the variety of responses that you really saw in the 80s, that some families completely cut off people, burnt their stuff, others were coming around them and saying, we'll make this work. They might have been homophobic, but also sort of, now my child is ill. I'm here. It's the reality. I want to be here. Definitely, definitely. People did, and people, some parents had such a shock because they first didn't know their son was gay. Then they told, I'm gay and I have AIDS and, you know, I'm dying. 
and it's not dying in a few years. By the time they got to tell their parents, they probably were down to the last sort of weeks of life in some cases. And so there's no time for the parents to adjust. There's no time to find that relationship because the other person, their son, was just too sick, you know, and you can't do all that. The emotional journey when you are, you know, getting chemotherapy or you're getting you're on oxygen or whatever you just haven't got that ability to form you know to solve those problems and so for the parents there was an enormous shock in some cases some people as always known their son was gay and, and you know stepped up to the mark immediately Deborah it was such a variety it was it was such a it's a, the same mixture of humanity you know plus adding in the, the prejudice but some people will, will always you know, face that and and stand by the people that they love. The structural violence, though, has in, in you know, listen, where we live has altered massively. You know, like there's so much less bigotry. We see yes. it now for the trans community more. Yes, uh, yes. We, we're seeing the same thing happen with the trans community. If we don't want transness discussed in schools. Yes. Uh, we don't, we're scared of trans people in the dressing room might mm-hmm. attack us. All of the same things that were said in the 80s about gay people. So um, we've always got to have something. We've always got to have something mm-hmm. to to be up against, you know. And it's it's just, I think, all about tolerance. It's all about opening the door for your... I know some children, some gay boys when they were young, that tried to say that they were gay, but then their parents would just never mention that again. You know, didn't want to discuss it. Didn't want to talk about it. Yeah. Didn't want to talk about it. And even though they didn't say, this is horrible and they, I don't want to know you, although I, I do know a boy who was literally, you know, threatened by his father because he had said he was gay and he subsequently left home and, and made his own life, you know. But That's why I think also Russell has done so well with this drama because in the queer community, this idea of chosen logical family is so important because you can't, you're not accepted at home or you you have different ideas of what your parents like think you are or different identities of what your parents believe is who you are. Mm-hmm. So you have to run away. You have to find a place called home and you have to find this chosen family. And, and that's why like the friends in this, in this drama, they are a family and throughout the years, they're more than friends. They're a chosen family that all come together and they all understand each other and they all accept each other for who they are when others did not accept them for who they are and namely mainly parents and families or old friends so I think that's so important and so special that he's depicted that in the show because it's just so real and so human and it's in everyday life for us I think you're you're absolutely I think that's spot on what what Lydia said then I think that's exactly right you know you have and we all do that anyway in life everybody chooses some friends to be their family they are their family but in that case, when he was sick, yeah, that's what it became. Yeah, you needed it. If your family weren't going to be there or if societal conditioning had taught your family to be homophobic and you were too ashamed or it mm. couldn't, within that time of illness, bring yourself to make the emotional journey to tell them, then you really were relying on your family. I mean, I'm adopted, so I've never felt like family's biology anyway. So I think right. I've always made my own family wherever I've gone. Yeah, there I, you I'm go. A big, mm urban family person. Lydia, how did you find the activism in the show, It's a Sin, the 80s activism versus the activism now that your generation, that Generation Z does? What were the similarities? What were the differences? I thought they were quite similar. I think with a group of friends like Jill and Jill at the start of the, if you see the end of episode one, not to spoil it, but she very quickly becomes part of this group of allies that when she meets up with Pete and she, she can't, she's, she always has an interest and she, she's always thinking a, a lot more in advance than most of the boys that also lived in the house. So I think her group and her people were very kind of active and, they did what they needed to do. They went to the protests. And that kind of is similar to now. Like when I think about the recent civil rights movement, everyone my age, it wasn't even a question of shall we do this? It was this is right. And we need to speak up and we need to act up and we need to do better and we need to learn and we need to educate ourselves. And that's what Jill is doing in the show with a group of people. So I think in her kind of in her circle in, in the show and in the 80s, it was very similar to how it is now. But now with our generation, with kind of everything accessibility to information to education we're better informed and um because of and, google honestly because of the internet exactly. because, of because you can find incredible. it out for yourself you know exactly um 
one point that I thought was very interesting was uh, when they're going to the protest and one of the more politically active guys says to you, oh, there should be 50 people there. And you say, oh, that's good. And he says there is something like 600,000 gay men in in London. Where the hell Mm -hmm. are they? Where the hell are Mm -hmm. they? Mm -hmm. But the stigma was huge. You know, when you see, I don't think this is a massive spoiler, but, you know, that they're protesting and they're trying to get the government to pay any attention. And, Mm. you know, I think your character, Jill, says if straight boys were dropping like flies. Oh, yes, yes. We used to say that. This this was. would be doing something like they are with coronavirus. Like they would be doing something. But because it was seen as this sort of stigmatised, dirty population, it was like, well, they can all infect each other and die. I mean, that's honestly how it seemed like the, mm-hmm. you know, it was, a, it was a conservative government in the 80s, both in America and mm. in Britain. And Reagan famously never mentioned AIDS, never mentioned that mm-hmm. there was a pandemic happening and he never, ever, 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 Well, ever, I mean, ever, you, ever weren't, you were not allowed, you were not allowed to go into the States if you were HIV positive yeah. at that time. That, they that, did not yeah. want you to go in. If you, and it if was you were seen HIV as, well, you're other so. anyway, you're out in your gay clubs, you, you know, infect each other, we don't care. And so this protest, which was fascinating to watch as depicted in It's a Sin, there are only about 50 people there. And when they lie down on the road to try and stop the traffic, to try and create this scene to get attention, when the police come, they put gloves on and some of the bystanders are shouting, don't touch them. Because yeah. there is, it's assumed that everybody lying down has AIDS and there's such a fear and a stigmatization. And that's why 600,000 gay men, where are they? That was the fear. I don't want to be seen as one of the ones who has yeah. this. I don't want to be someone who's untouchable. Or gay at all. Exactly. Or gay at all Richie, because Richie Richie my not job. attending. Jill had a line that said, be fair, if he's seen as gay in public, he might never work again. And that was mm-hmm. that, that. That was it. Richie, if Richie came out as gay, he was working in screen and doing Doctor Who and he was doing a lot of theatre. And if he was seen as gay in public, he would never work. He'd play the clown. So he couldn't come out and he could. Yeah. Which is just disgusting. It's so horrible. It's oh, quite incredible so. when you when you think of it. It's just it's not it doesn't even seem that it's that long ago. It might do because Lydia mm-hmm. wasn't even born, but to me it feels like it's not that long ago. It's not that long you know, ago. I know it is I quite mean, long, but No, it's not that long ago. It's a lifetime. I, was, I graduated from uni in two thousand and you know, back then actor friends of mine were not out, but now like I'm friends with Andrew Scott and Russell Tovey and people like and they wouldn't even think about you know I mean, they don't think about it, but they, they're out, they're proud, they're acting in all sorts of different roles, they're constantly working, they play yeah. gay roles, they play straight Absolutely. roles, you know, they're having an amazing career. And what an incredible thing to you know, what a relief to be able to live your truth and be on the red carpet with whoever you love and yeah. still be able to play a spectrum of roles. What a relief. Because after all, you are an actor. So it doesn't matter what your personal life is. If you can act and make it work, you know, that's that's. Oh, but such a cool happens. choice or action. I don't know if it was on Russell or if it was someone else to cast uh, queer actors in these queer roles. I thought it was such a, a such a lovely thing. Um, I did see Russell know. saying, Kima. He said we wanted to make sure all of the parts were played by queer men, but you can't you can't ask that in auditions. I don't think, and I and I don't think he actually. You can specify, he, I believe, on forms the same way that you can say like if like we like when you are um, casting someone in a trans role, you can say um, you know trans artists apply type thing. Yeah, I think he just felt like it was like it was an awkward conversation to have. Like, uh, you know, like, uh, but he said all of the roles by one were played by gay men. I'm not 100 percent sure that he actually planned that in advance. I think he was just he was absolutely pleased that that happened. But I don't think he that was a choice that he made in the advance gay of the agenda wasn't at yeah. play here. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know 100 percent, but I feel like it was a, a moment's fortuitousness on this show. Can we talk about Richie? Because he's the most fascinating character. It's implied that he's voted for Thatcher. He yeah. Did. And he is on the wrong side of every single argument. And yet he's kind of our hero, really. He's our, I yeah. mean, we have this bunch of heroes in this, but he is our sort of central hero. Who's quite centrist, if not right-leaning. Yeah, and he also is just on the wrong side of stuff. Like, he's not really a good guy, which is a really brave choice. You know, in many ways, he's lovable and his friends adore him and he's charming. But in many ways, he's not a good guy. 
There's oh, many wow. gay men who vote conservative out there. I mean, I don't feel they're voting in their interests, but... No, you, you, but I mean, it's true, they, but they have other interests, which they, across the age range, sure, but there's, there's many gay men who, you know, I, I don't think it makes it all bad. It's not just that. It's like when other gay men are protesting funerals and saying you're not acknowledging yeah, this yeah. man's lover or this man's, you know, partner... He was like, yeah. don't don't disrupt a funeral. Like he just generally felt. He was like, oh, but the family. There's no need to uh-huh. disturb the family. I think you understand and almost sympathise and empathise with Richie because you see where he comes from and you see mm-hmm. his background and you see how the parents are and you can see that it's generational and it's like that generational trauma that that passes through and in the end you sympathise with Richie because you. You understand he has questionable morals and values at times. He is a good person. He's fun. He's ambitious. He's the life of the party. He's a breath of fresh air because he is mm-hmm. his true self. He doesn't pretend to be anyone he's not. And then at the end, I th- I feel like because you see that where he comes from, you understand and you accept it and you totally. still love him for it. And that's what I think Jill does. Jill still loves Richie for who he is because she understands who he is and he, he's living somewhat his truth at certain points. She feels like she understands and knows his truth. And she can see it very clearly from visiting the Isle of Wight, from seeing how his parents act, yeah, yeah. the shame that he, he holds. And kind of he's just buried in that shame. And he has this fear of, of I think he also, I got from watching it, that he has this such a fear of AIDS. He knows that's maybe, you know, that he's going to catch it or has mm-hmm. caught it. And he can't bear anything that's causing more disturbance, you know, that in that funeral. It's just like, oh, my God, it's, it's AIDS again, you know, and it's all that whole thing absolute called denial. Causing, the absolute denial. Yeah. I think that Richie um, was important because... I don't think we see um, internalized homophobia portrayed often. And it's such a real thing. Uh, And I think it was really important to see someone who was like, yeah, I might like this, but it's a bit dirty. Actually, it's it's bad. And um, it's such a real thing and such a present thing. And I think Richie also acts as a kind of, I feel like he acts as a bridge because a lot of the audience that will be tuning in to see if they can even stand to keep watching will be like his parents or like him. You know, what is this Russell T Davies? What has he written now? Um, Yeah, yeah. I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right. You have a scene, Lydia, where your character talks to Keely Hawes, who's playing Richie's mother, about the manifestation of shame, about what it does to a child when their parents raise them in an environment where even if they don't know they're gay, they raise them in a homophobic environment. It's what Hannah Gadsby says in Nanette about, um, she said, the thing is, it's the people who love you that say these things around you when you're a child. They don't know you're gay, but they say these things around you. And each day you are being brutalized because you're hearing this. I mean, she grew up in a time when they were debating in Tasmania, her state of Australia, whether or not it could be legal to be gay. So she heard these debates all the time on television. She's very anti-debates about equal marriage or anything like that because she said it was the debates that kill the children because they're listening to the TV and you might be five, but you know there's something different about you and you hear people equating you to a paedophile or othering you in some really horrible way. So the shaming of somebody before you even know who they are How difficult was it to do that scene where you front off as the closest friend of Richie's with his mother about Mm. the the shaming of him and the shaping of him and the shaming of him? Yeah, I I think for Jill, that moment is a long time coming. We see Jill start at 18, kind of being dismissed by her seniors, kind of following the rules, trying to be to be there for everyone, to support everyone, not really speaking up. She learns so much and she grows up so much. She has to grow up so quickly. And she's 24 when all of this is, starts to happen. And I think that moment is just the moment where it's two mothers, his logical, his biological, facing each other. Jill, who accepts Richie and loves him for who he truly is. And then Valerie, who is rather the opposite, who won't accept him because of her own shame and, and her own kind of internal prejudice and generational trauma that has been passed down to her which has been passed down to Richie in turn and for Jill it's a moment of complete clarity Jill is no longer this 18 year old who's afraid to speak her mind and to speak her truth and she simply just kind of 
tells Valerie exactly how it is and hope it lands, but it probably won't. And she will continue and shoot. That's why she goes and she sits with these men in their last their last days and she sees it all the time. So for Jill, it's just a moment of complete strength. So I just tried to play it as composed as I could. And Keely was is amazing. And what she gave me, I just tried to listen to and tried to respond. She's an incredible actress, isn't she? she what is a brilliant scene between you both are. Fabulous. Brilliant. It was mesmerising, that scene. Absolutely mesmerising. One of the best scenes I think I can ever remember seeing on television. And what I found am- amazing about that scene is, in, in, this is a small detail, but the start and the finish, it's Jill walking to her. So there's a, like maybe oh. a 30-second walk. And then afterwards, yeah. there's a walk away. And it's that Valerie would not even have the decency to walk to meet Jill it's Jill walking that whole distance she blames you she blames Jill because you're seen as the sort of and I know this is a thing that I I recognize sometimes with parents going it can't be my angel so somebody's got them mixed up in this Mm -hmm. somebody's responsible for their queerness for them keeping their queerness from me it can't be that they are inherently queer and it can't be that they were too frightened to tell me because they knew how to react so somebody's got in their head somebody's influenced them it's you and it's the way interesting way and this is in terms of feminism that sometimes women turn on other women and they go I don't want you know my son is an angel and he was my little baby in my arms so it's got to be someone else and they're looking for a woman to blame and that's why it's so interesting that actually a lot of these face-offs came down to women. And it's, a, it's I think it's a real testament to Russell's writing that he doesn't write women out of this. I would have been interested to see more. I know more. that Russell wanted eight episodes of this yeah. and only got five. I mean, what is television thinking? To I mean, could we have? I would have had sixteen or twenty. I don't understand. <laughs> oh God! <laughs> I want this to run for eight seasons, which I know is not possible because of the themes and the tragedy of the show, but. I want, can we, could we do, this is just a suggestion, <laughs> a reboot, a sort of, you know, Russell T. Davis does a lot of sci-fi. You know, he's the Doctor Who guy. Mm-hmm. Years mm-hmm. and years has got that element to it. Could I see where this is going. A parallel world. Okay. Russell T. Davies, I know you're going to yep. be listening to this because I'm sure you will. I can't imagine you wouldn't. He doesn't have anything else to do. I don't think so. I think he's right tuned in. All right. Parallel world. Parallel world. So like a sci-fi thing. So the It's a Sin crew, mm-hmm. but they get to play out the fresh meat fun of going through those years because in this parallel world, well, Doctor Who or somebody has come and taken away, uh, subverted the AIDS crisis so that that never happens. So mm. then we get six seasons of the It's a Sin crew. And can I suggest wow. that this show is called Ooh. La yeah, yeah. Wow. 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 Yeah. I'm here Actually, for it. We, we were talking about that with the boys, like how could we work together again? And um we suggested it's a sin the movie or it's yeah. a sin the mm. musical. Mm. It's a mm-hmm. sin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It'll all be out there, I bet you. <gasps> it's I a sin the musical. musical. Come on. It's a sin the musical would be so sad though, wouldn't it? But I suppose rent is it's a sin the musical, isn't it? It can't kind of. But we'd also well, have can't to you just the, do rent? What would, what would the French Revolution be in the It's a Sin the Musical? Mm. That would be like a musical within a musical. Musical within a musical. Yes. That's cool. That's absolutely fine. That's been done. So that's yeah, in there. That. Okay. If, if, la, the musical, the TV show, the film, whatever comes out, Russell T. Davies, can Kima Bob be in it, please? Because I went to see Kima Bob in the West End in a drag show in which she played a drag king. It's true. It was a remarkable performance. I knew she was a good performer, but I didn't know she was an amazing actor. I didn't know you were such an amazing actor. First of all, thank you for being nice, Deborah. Second of all, I think Jill needs cousins. It's important. I think it's very important. You're like, why does why why Jill, you know, Roscoe's sisters and stuff? You know, American cousin is always It's important. A Texan-American cousin. In the musical. So You've got to have it in the musical. Howdy there, I'm coming through. It's the 80s. I'm Jill's cousin. That's what <laughs> It's the 80s. I'm Jill's, I'm cousin. Jill's cousin. These are just suggested lyrics, Russell T. Davies. You can go with your own. I like that but, lyric. Yeah, I mean. I, Who am I, Jill's cousin? <laughs> Listen, I've got you an audition. Stop singing. You're ruining it. Oh, you've lost, oh, you've lost it now. You've oh, it lost hurts. it, with it by singing. I probably could, I mean, because it was such a devastating show. It is a joyful show. If you haven't watched it, it's a joyful show. It's a funny show. It's a playful show. 
but please bring an enormous box of tissues because it is <laughs> freaking devastating. Just be ready. I love one of my favorite things about it, which I like. I was like, I want to take this on. Like, this such is a like such a brilliant skill that Russell has. There are these moments where they're you know the deepest, the darkest. We're on the verge of tears, and there's just a little joke that makes it a bit easier. That's brilliant. Hi, Leanne. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, yeah. yeah. Oh, my gosh. In the back of the protest. In the oh, that was so funny. There was actually a re- really funny moment in that scene, the Hi, Leanne. So we were rehearsing it, and it's like Ollie says, Richie says, oh, I'm here with all my friends. I didn't know where, when I was going to tell you guys, who are you? And she says, I'm Leanne. And then there was a there, there was a take where we all said, hi, Leanne, back to That's her. That's so funny. And we just went, hi, Leanne. Hi, Leanne. And then yeah. we all just started cracking up in the take. And Peter, our director, was like, no, that, we can't do that. Too much. Oh, too much. Too much. That, that was so funny. It was a it really wasn't... good moment. So, um, OG Jill... I want to ask, after um, being in this story um, at the time, um, seeing the way that information has evolved and the ways that people had to struggle and suffer um, and how that's been alleviated, but at the same, like alleviated a bit, but at the same time, um, acknowledging that we are in danger of um, forgetting How does it feel for you on a personal level to see this story told this way right now? I actually think that's fantastic because on a personal level, it's made everybody love the boys that they Mm. were so stigmatized against in the 80s. And I think that now they're getting the love. There's a wave of love that Mm. falls over them after the event. And I think that's how it's felt for me. I'm thinking, wow, they could each and every one of them now stand up and say, okay, I have AIDS. I'm coming to work. I'm still able to do my job or not and get the love and Mm. sympathy and care that they deserve instead of having to pretend when you're in work that you feel fine if you happen Mm. to not feel well or nobody really gave them the love and the care then. And I think that's come in abundance now. Yeah. I also want to say, because... Uh, seeing how you speak and we've seen how you're portrayed I'm really glad that you're getting your flowers yes um, <laughs> I think it's so it's huge. a weird thing that's so weird it's just strangeness person you were and I think because the whole story of AIDS was being written out because people didn't want to look at it they yeah. they were scared to catch it they didn't want to look at it they were like there's those queer people that they you know they can all be behind closed doors looking after each other. We're not engaging. Yeah. What it meant was that the people who were part of that community but not liable to get AIDS yeah. became the carers and the protectors and the people who spoke out and tried to get change yeah. and make the change that has been made so that HIV is more manageable and people can take PrEP not to get it. They were written out. They've been forgotten. And there was a sort of self-sacrifice to that and a a glorious compassion that we can all learn from from that. So I am very happy that you are being centred in this and being seen. Wow, that's a, it's an amazing thing. I, I think that I think you'll also see um, out of it that there's people around everybody that have been keeping quiet, taking their combination therapy. They still haven't been able to say it. And I think a lot more people will just feel, okay, I'm, I'm saying, okay, I have AIDS, I'm taking mm. my treatment, you know, I'm living a normal life. But most people have kept that a little quiet. Mm. Well, I thought, I saw on the It's a Sin after show, Kima, one of the actors that played yeah. one of, that played Nathaniel. Richie's boyfriend. Nathaniel. Yeah. His name is also Nathaniel. Nathaniel. Double yeah. Nathaniel, double the fun. Um, and I think, <laughs> I think it's so powerful um, because to his knowledge, he's one of the few, um, very few, if not only, out HIV plus um, actors, um, and this has to be such a a moment for him as well to be able to be embraced for being open about um, his story. Um, yeah. So I'm excited for Nathaniel and other people who are affected. Um, I've had a friend disclose to me and how. I feel like um, having someone disclose that status to you in that moment, you understand how heavy it is for them, how, and you feel that kind of weight just transferred a little bit where I knew instantly 
Um, what I'm now holding is something precious. I'm being trusted so much. And this, you know, is a powerful moment for this person and for me. And that weight of knowing that I will not repeat this moment, which mind you, I struggle with holding any kind of water, just knowing like this, this is something that we hold here. That spoke of the stigma to me, if that makes sense, how much sure. I knew not to say anything. Yes. Um, yeah. And that's now. Also, that, that's what it needs to be. It needs to be open dialogue. It needs to be communication. It needs to be solidarity. It needs to be family support. This is, you can survive a very healthy happy prosperous long life when AIDS wins it's usually because of no family support of the stigma the shame lack of communication and this impression this this like negative impression and that's what if it's a sin has done anything it's helped open those conversations and have those dialogues to raise awareness to help fight the fight really with with that no, it seriously has done that. I mean, that it's, it's amazing how many people are talking about it. It's actually... Totally. And just oh. the power of story, the power of story oh. in yeah. what it will unlock and engage and how it will get us to empathise. Uh, I've said it recently, but I was talking to Hannah Gadsby and she said, story holds our cure. And mm-hmm. I, that's absolutely right. It's our yes, cure. Lovely. Because mm-hmm. we will, if we can get into the head of somebody like Colin who's this young Welsh oh. virginal, you know, mm. young gay man who wants to be part of the scene but is actually, you know, just a shy guy and nervous around the community but wants to be part of it. It's as easy to contract HIV on your first ever sexual experience as it is on your hundredth or your thousandth. Well, you're only ever going to get it from one person. Exactly. Mm. So it could be the first person, the second person, the third person. That character just melted my heart. He, uh, oh, just my goodness. Roscoe's just absolutely a powerhouse and a joy and a delight. And, oh, God, I could spend so much time out on the town with Roscoe. Honestly, uh, I feel so lucky to, like, I just wish, like, everyone who falls in love with you guys on screen would have, like, the opportunity to, like, chat to you. Because, like, Deborah, the way that you're saying that um, Colin was super sweet, Callum, who plays Colin, is hilarious. He's so kind so and sweet, funny. but he's the funny, he's the goofiest so little goober. Can we all go yeah. out after the pandemic, please? That's what, oh my I gosh. Can we all go I out can't like, to even. a bar so, and then Roscoe, just like... Roscoe, played by Omari, has this like lively energy. I, except, I don't know how to describe it. He's almost like regal in real life. I don't know how to... There's like a classy smartness to Omari, but he's also so quite stunning. fun. Do you know no, what I mean? Amazing. Like it's just a held, like a head held high where I'm just like, damn, I need to better my posture. <laughs> and you, like the warmth, like the way that how I met Lydia was hosting the show and I'm in like kind of like anxiously, I've never like hosted a thing before and she's so warm and I'm just kind of like, I don't know, I don't know, but you guys are so lovely. I um, look forward to you continuing to be like spoiled by love and adoration. Jill, I hope more flowers come your way. (laughs) It's just really cool. Amazing. Is there anything you came to say today that you didn't get to say about either the show or the AIDS crisis or anything for young activists today, Jill, that you... Well, I, only that, you know, it's still out there. It's still, there are still problems. It's not all solved. It's just get tested, you know, be open as soon as you feel you can, you know, because in the majority of times, if you tell the right people, then they'll embrace you and you can, you know, grow from there. And suddenly it's a normal part of life and nobody's whispering behind you, you know, and then there's plenty of people out there to to help. And, you know, I just think... Yeah, there's work to do. Can I also just say, you know, we are speaking from a very Western viewpoint here. Oh, where, yeah, of course. You yeah. know, what we should be campaigning for is for the same drugs to be available in Africa that mm. are available here. I mean, I think we've got two million, at least two million AIDS orphans in sub-Saharan Africa. I mean, you know, the problem globally is beyond belief. It's quite incredible. So, And mm. so, you know, we're we're talking about sort of, young, relatively privileged people having fun in, you know, in the in the 80s and, you know, this coming out of nowhere. Um, not to say that they weren't working class, but, you know, no, sure. a bunch of young people could afford to rent a house in the 80s quite easily. 
when I was hearing, I mean, the only thing I was jealous of really was when I was hearing the rents. It was like sort of oh you know, my two goodness. pounds a week, and, and that was pounds a week. And I was, was like twenty pounds. It was twenty pounds a week each. Was that twenty pounds a week? Was that twenty pounds a week? I minimised it even further because it's I was so you horrified. Did. You, you were- <laughs> yeah. And they said the rent went down because Roscoe did a little something something with the landlord, and I was even yeah. in awe of that because <laughs> uh, the company that I'm paying, they don't want none of this. So. <laughs> Oh. How much was the Pink Palace? You remember, Jill, in our scene? The price of it in, to buy? Yeah, because I remember I told that 42000 hmm. And that was the actual price of it. Did you actually buy it? No, but we did look at the, what the price of it would be. It wasn't for sale. The, the people didn't want to sell it at the time. We had it for five years, but it was worth £42,000. Yeah, I mean, now, well, do you I wish parking we could space have bought it? £42,000 in London no, now. No, honestly, I mean, you can. You honestly can buy a parking space for about that. <laughs> but the real Pink Palace was actually so pink. Lydia's heard this before. It was seriously pink. It was a big two-bedroom flat, not all the bedrooms. There wasn't sex 24-7 in every bedroom all the time. Uh, but. Uh, it, <laughs> it has its moments. It had plenty of parties, but the sofas were pink, the curtains were pink, the floor was dusky pink carpet, and the walls were flock. There was three chandeliers, silver service, Ooh. oak tables, and we were as students going, "Oh my god, it's a palace!" And then we called it yes. the Big Palace. Palace. So you you just rented it, and it was already done out like that. Yes. And they, and they left it there. They left us everything in there, all this beautiful stuff that was in there, you know, Bezic ornaments and uh, Susie Cooper, you know, um, salt and pepper sets and everything was high end glamour. And we absolutely loved it. Oh, my goodness. Did you goodness. have some phenomenal parties in there? Yeah, we had some lovely cabarets there is what we had. You know, that scene where he goes, love. Yes. We had, some, we had a bit of that, that sort of thing. We had parties. It wasn't just every night, but we had plenty of people. And yeah. there's people phoning me now and sending me text saying do you remember I stayed at the Pink Palace I don't remember everybody staying I don't remember who actually stayed <laughs> because there because you but were everybody out of there it's a bit like Woodstock though not everyone who claims to have been there can possibly have been there <laughs> yeah yeah people go so I'm laughing thinking oh really I did okay yeah okay I'm sure I remember but were you really in Les Mis or similar no I was in Les Mis were you in Les Mis yeah, yeah. oh my Love god it. I was Jill. in Les Mis yeah 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 after the pandemic I want to go out with you for drinks and I want to hear every single story from that so time. I loved it I loved it and then of course that gave me the ability to be in London and then you know do hospital stuff in the mornings go you know after the show if you need to because all the aids centres of excellence at that time were more so in London. I know Mm. there was places around the country as well, but London was a bit of a hub for new treatments and stuff. So I think people felt, so that that gave me the ability really. Luck of the draw was in a West End show at the time. What a remarkable lady you are having. (laughs) What a cool lady. So cool, Jill. Gosh. Cool, I'm cool. But that led to the ability to do all the fundraising because of course everybody's in a show in town. They, Mm. you know, you're in a long run. You look for other so people look for other stuff to do. So we did late night cabarets. We did all this pool of fundraising from the West End community. We raised a lot of money. We raised a few million over the time that I was doing Lemis and uh, Oliver wow. did all of them. So wow, yeah, we do a lot of fundraising and um, outreach programs with refugees and things like that. Wow. So brilliant. maybe on the other side of all of this, when we're allowed to do a cabaret again, Jill, you. And Lydia and Kima and I can be the, the initial four for organising a cabaret. Yeah, well, I'm thinking Obviously. I've already spoken to Theatre Mad, which is the, what West End Cares became, and already said, like, this is the ideal opportunity now for a West End totally. Cares night, you know, because everyone's talking about AIDS and HIV and then link up with a charity in Africa um, South Africa, probably, because that's where we raised some money for in the past, you know, and you go over there to South Africa, which I have done and been. And we bought um, a van and some, you know, some equipment so that they could go around taking. And it wasn't the proper triple combination. It was vitamins and food and stuff to people that were too sick to be actually looking after themselves or their children. It's a crisis in parts of the world. We'd love to do a Guilty Feminist cabaret got to after this so please 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 can we stay in touch and can definitely 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 go drinking and uh and secondly let's do an it's can i bring some of the boys or all uh, of them <laughs> oh, she bring, don't. i don't know we'll have to talk about whether or not you could bring you some can't, of the boys you can't, yeah. we're not sure 
Don't bring uh, Nathaniel. Don't bring Nathaniel. Yeah, hey, there you go. Bring them all. Bring them all. Bring them all and bring Russell. <laughs> bring Russell. Well, he'll definitely help oh, with the fundraising. Nice. I'm sure he will. And um, yeah, I was thinking, I was telling Lydia before, I'm, I'm planning a Moira Rose party. <gasps> yes, please. Oh my gosh, wigs, yeah. wigs, wigs, yeah. wigs. Yeah, wigs, wigs mandatory, full outfit, uh, you know, in your own time. Hey. Okay, all right. So <laughs> oh there's God. two nights now. There's the Guilty Feminist Cabaret. <laughs> Guys, also, I'm cabaret I moved into this place during the pandemic. I haven't even been able to warm my home. So third event, my it's house warming. Yeah. Everyone Lovely. needs to look at the bookshelf oh, that I built. Yeah, it's gorgeous. It's gorgeous, oh, your place. Sofas. It's a huge Beautiful. deal. So come sit on them. Event number three, my house warming. So many plans. Three oh. events. Get us out of lockdown. <laughs> Guys, you have been, it's just been so glorious. Kima, anything else to say? Except watch It's a Sin and watch it again. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you are in America, you want to be on the HBO Max. Get in there. It is one of the greatest shows you'll ever see. It's joyful. It's playful. It's glorious. It's funny. Mm-hmm. It has great little cameos from Neil Patrick Harris and Stephen Fry. What else yeah, do you people yeah, want? Yeah. But please tissue up. And I would suggest pace yourself. I don't actually think maybe binging five episodes in a row is actually good mm. for your health. Like, I think actually <laughs> just no. maybe take, look, I don't want to be a doctor here, but I'd say take two mm. with some water. Mm-hmm. Before bed. And then the next day, take another two before yeah. bed. That's what mm. I would say. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's <laughs> um, also, you know what I'm saying? After you finish watching that show, you know, whether you're in the US or the UK or anywhere else around the world, I don't mean to be so English white country centric. Um, but you know, why don't you head to YouTube, you know, a type of it's a sit after hours when you can see interviews with the cast and whatnot and little snippets from Russell T. Davies, you know, and your girl holding the little little cue cards, you know what I'm saying? So go ahead and check that out on the internet. So Kima Bob is doing the after show and it is fine, can I just say? She is glorious at it. We have a good time. Anything else to plug, Jill? Mm, no, I don't think so. Okay, watch It's a Sin, Lydia. Anything else to plug? Kima, Bob, anything else to plug? I was going to say these nuts, but now I just feel like I've given Tom something else to edit out. Um... <laughs> you have been listening to The Guilty Feminist with me, Deborah Francis White, guest co-host Kima, Bob, and our very special guest, Lydia West and Jill Nolder. The Guilty Feminist theme tune was composed by Mark Hodge and produced by Nick Sheldon. The producer was Tom Selinsky for the Spontaneity Shop. Thanks to Rachel Croft, Gina DCO, and everyone who made this episode happen, as well as all of you for listening. More information about this and other episodes was at guiltyfeminist.com! Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Some of the craziest lines, and I'm just like, ah, it's bad. What's it's the like, show? Uh, Eastbound and Down, and it's so funny. It's uh, I, it's the same feeling you get when you laugh at a piece of like old Louis C.K. material. You're just like, oh, I'm dirty, but that was a great joke. It's really I hear bad. It. I hear it.